Now, Father, we come to the time in this service when we bow in your presence and open this book that we call your word, your word that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, your word that encourages us when we're down in spirit, your word that instructs us when we know not the path to take, your word that lifts us up when our spirit is down. I ask you to touch us, O Lord, with something of which we're not worthy, the anointing of your presence. Help us, O Lord, to derive from this word instruction to live this life as you would have us to live it. In Jesus' name, amen. And everybody said amen. Amen. Turn with me to 2 Samuel. We're going to preach today another installment in our 33-year-long intrigue with David. I've read so many books about David. My shelves in my library are full of books about David, commentaries about David, all kinds of etymological studies about David. He is one of the most complex persons in all of the Bible. We have this image of him variously. We got one of him with a sling in his hand, a 17-year-old teenager fighting a seasoned warrior like Goliath, a nine-foot-tall giant from Gath, who took some smooth stones and a shepherd's sling and slew a giant. That's a wonderful image that I have of him. But I have another image of him lying on the ground, hasn't eaten for seven days, He's skinny and scrawny and has a hollow look in his eye. He's grieving because of the death of a son. I have another image of David. I have him rejoicing when he is restored and comes back into Jerusalem as the king. What a great day that is. And in like manner, we all are anticipating a day when our king is coming. Our king is coming. And we wonder sometimes about that, that homecoming event and that restoration event. How David handled his coming back to the throne is instruction for us on how that we should deal with others in our relationship in 19th chapter of 2 Samuel. And it was told Joab, Behold, the king weepeth and mourneth for Absalom. And the victory that day was turned into mourning. A victory which should be a celebration, a victory which should be a joyous event, and a victory which should be a, a time to th praise and thank God turned into mourning. Sometimes when life deals you a sucker punch, sometimes when you're hit with something you weren't prepared for and don't know how quite to deal with it, sometimes when that happens, what should be victory can turn into a mourning situation. What should be a praise turns into a mourning and weeping and a sorrowful thing. And the victory that day was turned into mourning unto all the people, for the people heard say that that day how the king was grieved for his son. And the people got them by stealth that day into the city as people being ashamed. You mean you had a victory for God and you felt ashamed? You mean you had a, 
a victorious event celebration scheduled, but it turned into a grieving and a mourning situation. But the king, the people got them, and they saw him steal away when they flee in battle, ashamed and as people who run in the face of a battle. But the king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom! Oh, Absalom, my son! And Joab came into the house of the king and said, Thou hast shamed this day the faces of all thy servants, which this day have saved your life, and the lives of thy sons and of thy daughters, and the lives of thy wives, and the lives of thy concubines, and that thou lovest thine enemies and hatest thy friends. Thou lovest thine enemies and hatest thy friends. What in the world could get us so misaligned that we would hate our friends and love our enemies? What event could be so devastating that it changed our whole personality, our whole makeup of who we are? We lost our identity in the process. And now we don't even look like or act like or talk like we did before that happened. Could I stop right here just long enough to tell you that there are some events in this journey we call life that can knock the breath out of you. It can send you to your knees. It can launch an attack upon your spiritual faith to the point that you begin to doubt and wonder. And it seems that at times people are most mean to the people that love them the most. The people that care the most get the brunt of their anger and their frustration. Life is like that. Life is like that. But God is a God of grace and God is a God of mercy. And though you may find yourself in that situation, like Isaiah, who was coming apart at the seams and unraveled. You may never have been like that, but I've been there. You mean pastors come to a time in their life when they're unraveled, coming apart at the seams? Sure. None of us are insulated. We all come under this cloud, you know, of being human. And the Bible said, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Brother, how many is many? Many. Many. So if you think having a bad blow is a one-time experience, hey, you need more faith than that. You need more grace than that because if Satan's got a knockout punch that'll put you on the bench and take you out, then I promise you that's going to happen to you sooner or later. But God is a God of grace and he's a God of mercy. Yes, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. David is a good example, though he's at the depths of despondency, though he is at his wit's end. He is destroyed, we might say. Laying in the dust, grieving. He's already been through this with one son. 
and recovered and said, I can't bring that son back to me, but I can go to where that son is. He recovered, but now you think the first time wasn't hard enough. Now you got another son. His name is Absalom. And what a hawk he is. Got so much hair that it overwhelms every other feature about him. He wouldn't cut it for nothing because that was his brand. That's who he was. Like Samson with the big hair. But the Bible said that as he rode through the forest, the thing he took most pride in was the thing that caught him in the boughs of a tree. It made him vulnerable. Yes, he was a warrior. Yes, he was a fighter. Yes, he was a prince. Yes, he was a king's son. But he got caught by the thing he prided the most and suspended Vulnerable. You see, when the devil gets you to a certain point, you're vulnerable. And the Bible said that Joab came along. Wrong thing to happen. And the Bible said that Joab threw darts through his heart and killed him, murdered him. Now, Joab is the captain of the host of the army of Israel. He's the number one warrior. He's the, he's the fighting man. And he kills Absalom, murders Absalom. And here David is, he's just got this news. But he doesn't yet know it was Joab that killed him. He doesn't yet know that he wasn't the victim of an accident. He doesn't yet know that he was murdered. Now he's got two sons dead, one a baby that died because God said that baby can't live because of the sin. And now he's got a son that's dead and murdered. And he's lying there and he's so miserable. And Joab comes in and he begins to be critical of him and, and to indict him. Joab came to the house of the king and said, You shamed all of Israel this day in the faces of all your servants, all your friends which this day has saved your life in that thou lovest your enemies. Absalom was your enemy. Absalom chased you out of Jerusalem like a dog, like an animal. Yes, you're the anointed of God. Yes, you're the rightful king of Israel. Yes, you're on the throne. Yes, you're in the rightful place. Yes, you're in the will of God. But that son, that, that menacing son of yours, who is so envious and so jealous and so hungry for power, chased you out of Jerusalem. And you left Jerusalem, you left the throne because you realized that people you trusted and people you believed in and people that you thought would always be on your side and always be for you turned against you. Ahithophel, the prophet, said, went to Absalom and said, Absalom, here's, here's a plan. Let me track David down. Said, I know his hiding places. I'm his friend. I know him well. I know his habits. I know his hangouts. I know where he goes. I know what he does. 
I'll go and I'll find him. I'll track him down and I'll, I'll find him and I'll kill him for you. And when I do, I'll bring his old dead carcass back to you. But another prophet prophesied and the choice was made. Absalom chose to believe the other prophet. And Ahithophel, the Bible said, went down to his house and he put his house in order and went out and hanged himself. You see, betrayal, it has a big price tag. I said betrayal has a big price tag. I'm reminded of Judas Iscariot who betrayed the Lord. Of all that was said about him, the most terrible, atrocious thing that could be said about him, the one who betrayed the Lord, the one who kept the purse, the one who betrayed the Lord. Betrayal. How many in this house would agree with me that betrayal is the most hurtful sin? Brother, when you're betrayed by someone that you loved and you trusted, when you're betrayed by someone you thought would always be there, when you're betrayed by people that you felt were godly and were, were seeking the will of God and, and were in faith and were all of those, those things, and suddenly you realize they're not. And you find out that they would destroy you if they could. That's one of the most hurtful things ever. One of the most hurtful things ever. You loved your enemies and hate your friends for thou hast declared this day that thou regardest neither princes nor servants for this day I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died then it would have pleased you well. Can you imagine? Joab looked him in the eye and said you're acting like you want all of us dead and your son alive. How can you get so misaligned as to believe something like that? that your grief is so great and your loss is so severe that you'd rather reverse reality if you possibly could. No one can hurt you like someone you love. It's quiet in this house, isn't it? We'll shout in just a few minutes. I, pro I promise there's some shouting at the end. But at the front of this, we've got to realize that... In many ways, we're a lot like the people I'm describing here. That we all need grace and we all need mercy. Now therefore arise and go forth and speak comfortably unto thy servants. For I swear by the Lord, if thou go not forth, there will not tarry one that will be for you and with you this night. And that will be worse unto you than every evil thing that has ever happened to you in all of your life. In other words, if you don't get up, if you don't get out of that ash heap, if you don't throw away those garments of gloom, despair, and agony on me, if you don't start acting like a king and stop acting like a victim, then you're going to mess up your life for good, buddy. Is anybody listening to this preacher preach today? What he was saying was, it's time for you. You're a king. Quit acting like a slave. You're a king. You're a ruler. You're a leader. Quit acting like some defeated person that has no hope. 
get up from that seat of grief and despair and agony and get on the business of, of the Lord. We need a king in Israel and you're the one that's anointed. You need to act like you're anointed. You're a king. You need to start acting like a king. If we're going to get out of this mess, somebody's going to have to lead us out. And as long as you're on your face grieving over an enemy that should have been killed anyway, as long as you're so in love with the past that you can't see the future, God wants you to do his will and be what he called you to be. God wants you to do what you're anointed to do. God wants you to perform like he anointed you and gifted you to do the will of God. I believe everybody in this house comes under that category. There comes a time for change. There comes a time when you've got to stop doing the things you've always done because you're going to keep getting the same result until you change. When you change and start acting different and, and Oh, hallelujah. Living different and praying different and, and testifying different and worshiping different. It's just quit acting like a defeated person that belongs somewhere in a hole. And don't think you're the only one. That great, fiery, preaching prophet, Elijah, stood up on Mount Carmel and said, my God's bigger than your God stood up on Mount Carmel and laughed at the enemy. Hey, why don't you guys holler a little bit louder? Maybe your God's asleep. Maybe you need to wake him up. Why don't you guys holler a little louder? Maybe you're not offering enough sacrifices. Cut a little deeper, a little more blood. Come on, you can dance better than that. Dance a little better before you're a pagan God that has no power. My God's gonna show you when you get out of the way who the yeah. real God is. Man, you talk about confidence, assurance. My God will do this. God will, will vindicate his name. God will vindicate the righteous. God will do his work among us. God will lick up this water. He'll burn up all of this stuff. He'll answer by fire. He'll prove to you who the real God is. Woo! Man, he even made fun of him when he walked around to the altar. The Bible said, go get me some water. Water, what you mean? You're wanting fire. Hey, these things are too dry. They won't burn. We had to wet these things. Twelve barrels of water, the Bible said, until water stood in the trenches around the sacrifice. And the Bible said he prayed a 63-word prayer. So evidently, the power is not lengthy prayers. Evidently, the power doesn't come through eloquent prayers. Evidently, the power doesn't come, the fire doesn't fall through some display of human ingenuity. But the Bible said when he prayed 63, he said that these people may know that thou art the God who made heaven and earth. Hey, glory, he wasn't saying that these people will know how great I am, that these people will find out how great you are. And the Bible said, and then 
the fire of the Lord fell. Glory to God. After he prayed that prayer, the Bible said the fire of the Lord fell and licked up the water, burned up the wood, burned up the bullock. And the Bible said, and then all the people said, the Lord, he is God. Well, suddenly we've got a hero. We've got a man of faith. The next thing we know, he's killed 430 prophets of Baal and the prophets of the groves, 400 of them. Wow. And next thing we know, there's a woman named Jezebel. And Jezebel said, God do to me if I don't do to you what you did to my prophets. She said, I'm going to kill you. I'll not tolerate you having these contests and defeating my prophets. And the Bible said, and Elijah ran. And he ran, and he ran, and he ran. He ran to Horeb. You know what Horeb means? House of God. He went over to a cave at Horeb, and he got back in the cave as far as he could get where nobody could find him, where nobody could see him, and he prayed a prayer. I like preaching in the dark. Lord, you're up there, I know. I just want to inform you that I've written my letter of resignation. I quit. And I want you to know something else, God. I'm the only one you got. And when I'm gone, you're going to be without. And I'm just going to sit here until I die in this cave. I made up my mind. I've preached my last preach. I've prayed my last prayer. I've delivered my last prophecy. I'm just going to sit here till I'm gone and then you're going to be zero. Somebody say next verse. I'm going to tell you there's always a next verse. Brother, when you show out with your mouth, there will always be a next verse. The next verse said, And the word of the Lord came unto me. Right. <laughs> Glory to God. I want to tell you there's no cave so desolate. There's no hole in the ground so isolated. There's not a place that's got so much darkness and ambiguity, but what the Word of God won't track you down and expose you and call you by name and tell you you get out of that hole in the ground. Come out here on the front. Come out here on the front and let me show you something, God. First off, you are thinking too much of yourself because you're not the only one. I've got 7,000 that haven't bowed their knee and they haven't used their mouth to use for the devil. I want to tell you, I've got people reserved. So you're not the only one. But let me tell you something. Get out here on the front. Let me show you. And the Bible said, and then there was a great earthquake. 
but God was not in it. Some things you think God just automatically gets in. Sometimes he says, no, none of that. And then there was a great fire, but God was not in it. And then there was a great wind, but God was not in it. And then there was a still, small voice. And the Bible said, that mantle that he had, God said, I'm going to use that mantle. And the Bible said, and from that day forward, Elijah depended upon the mantle. Boy, had so much power in that, that mantle that he stroked the Jordan and it parted hither and thither. So much power in that mantle that he cast it upon Elisha and call him from the plow field to come after God's man and get in ministry and be used of God. So much power in that mantle. So much power. He was probably the John the Baptist of the Old Testament. Boy, he had such a great power in him. So much that Elisha said, I won't double the power you've got. I won't double the anointing. And Elijah said, well, I've only got one mantle. But if you're with me, if you're with me, if you're not off somewhere pouting, but if you're you're not laying somewhere complaining, but with me, if you're with me, if you're with me, if you're with me, when I go up, I'll see to it that you get a double portion of what I got. God and he said I won't leave you I'll not let you take a step but what I go Elijah told him said I'm going over to Jezreel stay here he said nah as the Lord liveth I will not leave you he got across the Jordan he said I'm going over to Gilgal he said stay here I'll be back he said as the Lord my God lives I'll not leave you well I wish I had church members like that as the Lord lives, I shall not leave you. I, I'm, I'm going to stand in here. I'm going to be counted. And praise God, they got over to Bethel, and the Bible said he, he was caught up. And as he was caught up, the mantle came off and fell upon Elisha. And when he got back to the Jordan River, he took that mantle off. He said, I know it worked for Elijah. I just passed over this body of water here. When Elijah said, where is the Lord God? Amen. And he smote that, that water and it parted. And he used the mantle. I'm going to see if that will work for me. He threw that mantle down and cast it upon him. And the Bible said, and it parted hither and thither. Hey, don't you forget what God does for one, he'll do for another. What God gave my daddy, he'll give me. What God gave my grandfather who started preaching this Pentecostal word many, many years ago, a century ago. He's still giving. He's still anointing. He's still blessing. He's still empowering. He's still gifting. He's still doing miraculous things for those who trust him. But you got to stay with him. You got to stay with him. Well, David says, I want to talk to everybody. I need to tell everybody something. I need to, I need to have a, a meeting. Let's get up to Jerusalem and let's have a, have a meeting. Let's, let's read his, his meeting. 2 Samuel 19. Then the king arose 
and sat in the gate. And they told all the people saying, there is the king. Well, last time we saw him, he was in a mess. Last time we saw him, he was hollow-eyed. He was coming apart at the seams. He was unraveled. He was laying on the ground, wouldn't eat, wouldn't drink. Last time we saw him, he was grieving and sorrowful. He'd had a death blow and it knocked him out and we didn't know if he'd recover. Would you say you saw him? I saw him sitting in the gate where King sat. He is acting very much like a king. He is very much acting like the anointed one God called him to be. Oh, what a comeback. Somebody say we need a comeback. What a comeback. What a, what a restoration. And the Bible said he's now in the, in the gate of the city where they talk about how things are going to be. And then the people said, there's the king sitting in the gate. So all the people came before the king. For every one of Israel had fled to his tent. In other words, they'd all scattered like a bunch of partridges, my daddy used to say. Now all the people were in a dispute throughout all the tribe. Hey, when you've got no leader, people fuss. When you've got no clear person that says this is the mission, this is the vision, this is where we're going, then people get in a fuss. And there was a dispute. Somebody say dispute. There was a dispute throughout all the tribes of Israel saying the king saved us from the hand of our enemies. He delivered us from the hand of the Philistines. But now he has fled from the land because of Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, has died in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing back the king? So David, so David, we hear what the people are saying. What's David saying? We hear what the folks in the gate are saying. What's David saying? So David sent to Zadok and Abiathar. Now, who are these guys? They're the priests that remain faithful. These are the priests glory to God, that when Saul was trying to kill David, God spoke to Abiathar. He is of the house of Eli, the last priest of all the house of Eli. And Abiathar was a friend to David. And while David was running like an animal over at uh, En Gedi and all of those places where he hid out at, at the cave at Abdullam, he sent food to him and he sent sent provisions and sent, sent soldiers to help. Abiathar stayed on the job as the priest in the temple at Jerusalem, but his loyalty was to the anointed king. Not the revolting king, but the anointed king. Come on, somebody. Glory to God. Abiathar. And David sent word to Abiathar and to Zadok, another priest. And he said, ask the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his palace? Since what is being said throughout Israel has reached the king at his quarters. What's David saying? He's saying this. If all of Israel wants me to come back as king and wants to restore the anointed, why is my family, Judah, the last one's for restoration and healing. What's quiet in this house? There are no problems like family problems. 
when a family takes sides with people that want to kill you and when the celebration comes about and it's time for healing and restoration your family is the last ones to say that's what we want for families to give grace to other members of the family and to give mercy to other members of the family. Well, you just don't know what he did to me. You just don't understand. You just weren't there. You didn't hear what was said. You, you feel like me, you wouldn't want him back in the family either. If he'd said to you what he said to me, you'd want to kill him too. I know. I know. There are no issues that can get as intense and as fervent as family issues. And some unforgiving spirit can rip and tear families apart. An unforgiving spirit can do atrocious things and leave scars and wounds that can never be repaired. Oh yeah, there may be a come time when you do this, do that. But that wound and that scar, that scar will always be there. It's hard to take back words that have been said. It's hard to get an eraser and wipe off the board. But I'm going to show you in just a minute that's what grace and mercy is. Oh, Lord, it's time for me to get up and get out of here right now if he's going to do that. He's going to get on that forgiveness stuff, and I don't want to hear that. Get your purse, Mama. We may be leaving a little early. You see, when God saved your family, He put a priest in that family. I said, God put a priest in that family. And the priest of that family is the one that administers the sacrifice, the one that administers and takes care and ministers grace to that family. He what does a priest do? One who goes to God for people. A priest. A father. Listen up, Dad. You got your day next Sunday. And I, I promised I wouldn't beat up on you. So let me beat up on you a little bit now. God wants fathers to be the priests of their family. One who goes to God for their family. He protects the family, provides for the family. He leads the family. He sets the pace. He sets the example. The reason, buckle your seatbelt, the reason our culture is in the shape it's in right now is that the family unit is falling apart in our country. And one of the reasons, now you won't get any popularity votes, one of the reasons that the family unit is under attack and falling apart is that men won't assume their role as the priest that God put in that family. David said, why is it my family is the last ones? And that hurts him. Why are you, you're bone of my bone, you're flesh of my flesh. Why then are you the last to bring back the king? And then David does this thing in verse 13. Put that one up there for me. And say to Amasa, 
Are you not bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh? You're my family. God do so to me and more if you are not commander of the army before me continually in the place of Joab. In other words, he said, there are some things that need to be corrected and there are some people in my life that I no longer need in my life. What happened? David found out that Joab murdered his son. So now then things have changed. Not only had he murdered a former general, Abner. Have I ever, I've preached about Abner, haven't I? Yeah, died Abner as a fool. Yeah, that was the thing you quote sometimes, is a great man in Israel has fallen this day. That was the funeral at Abner. You know who killed him? Joab. You know why Joab killed him? Eliminate my competition. Another reason he killed him was he had a brother whose name was Ahithophel and Ahithophel and Ashahiah was also a commander, one of the generals. And it was Abner that had killed Joab's brother in a battle between David's men and Absalom's men. So Joab said, he killed my brother, and he's my competition, so I'm going to kill him. And he sent word to him. He said, hey, meet me outside the gate of the city. I've got something to tell you. Boy, that'll get you going every time, won't it? That whole idea runs Facebook. I got something to tell you. So the Bible said that he met him outside the gate of the city and the Bible said that Joab slipped a knife into his rib cage and pierced his heart and killed him. Why, why did he die like a fool, Pastor? Well, Hebron was a city of refuge. And in, ref, in that city of refuge, no killing, no murder, no violence could be done. So he said to him, meet me outside the gate of the city. Well, ignorant, you're safe in the city. How did you so stupidly go outside? You know, sometimes I look at why people do what they do. And I scratch my head. Abner died like a fool because he fell for a frivolous scheme. He's a general. He's a warrior. How in the world do you get victimized by something stupid? Have you ever laughed at yourself for doing something stupid? There are people that make money off of folks every minute of every day. People who do stupid things. Praying upon the elderly and people like that. Sending emails. You've got a warrant for your arrest. If 
you don't send me $3,000 right now, those sheriff's deputies will be out there in two hours, pick you up and lock you up in jail. Get the checkbook, honey. We, we've got to send these people $3,000. Don't be stupid. You've got to go to trial. You've got to be indicted. There's got to be a grand jury. There's all kinds of things got to happen before they come pick you up and take you to jail. If you ain't done nothing, come on, somebody. Don't be stupid. Don't step outside the gate of a place of protection. Second reason he died like a fool, he never drew his sword. You want to tell me something, you're going to tell me with my sword in my hand. You're going to tell me something, I'm going to have my Bible, the sword of the Spirit in my hand. You're going to tell me something, I'm going to have the Word of God in my hand. I'm not going to leave it in the sheath where I can't use it. You're not going to ambush and kill me with something stupid. I'm going to pull out my sword, which is the Word of God, and you're not going to kill me because I've got the sword. Come on, somebody. My Lord, I hadn't got a third into this, and that's done got overwhelming. Got more points than a porcupine. Let me try to say this to you. Come on, Connor, and help me quit. David said Amasa is going to be, though he was the commander of Absalom's army, he's going to become the commander of my army. Are you kidding me, Pastor? You're going to take a man who has commanded an army that sought your life and wanted to kill you, and you're going to be generous, kind, hospitable, forgiving, and you're going to put that guy over your army? Who in the world was Amasa? Well, actually, he's Joab's nephew. He's Abigail's boy. Ken folks, come on somebody, Ken folks, and David put Amasa, he is the one that led the army out to kill David, and now David wants to put him in charge of his. I wonder how Joab felt about that, don't you? And then the king returned, verse 15, and came into the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to go to meet the king, to escort the king across the Jordan. Across the Jordan. David left Manahim and he started with all of his people to go back to Jerusalem. Back to the throne. Back to the anointed place. Back to who God called him to be. And as he made his way back, he came to Jordan. Jordan is a popular place in the Bible. It's a place of transition. You remember when the children of Israel were about to go into the promised land, they were stopped at Jordan. Something, God's got to help us to get across Jordan. When you cross over Jordan to Canaan's fair land, when you cross over to obtain the promise and possess the possession to be the people that God wants you to be, you're about to cross over Jordan. We use that sometimes to talk about our home going. Looked over Jordan, 
What did I see? A band of angels coming after me, coming for to carry me home. I won't have to cross Jordan alone. Jesus died all my sins to atone. When the darkness I see, he'll be waiting for me. I won't have to cross Jordan alone. Here they are on the stormy banks of Jordan. Going back, going home. David said, there was a mean guy. He's next in this series. His name was Shimei. See, when David left, Shimei, he was of the house of Saul. And that was Benjamin's tribe. And Benjamin's tribe hated Judah because Judah made them look bad. And they felt like David was responsible for the demise of Saul. And that David was the one that defeated Saul. David was the reason that Saul was dethroned. Saul was the rightful king. David was the one that came in and deposed him. And they hated David. And when David was leaving Jerusalem, there was a special family member of Saul. His name was Shemaiah. And the Bible said he took rocks and threw rocks at David. Thou bloody man! Thou child of the devil, you awful scoundrel, you, you terrible person, you wicked one. Go, go, we run you off, we're rid of you. We're finally getting rid of you. Go and threw rocks at him and picked dirt up and threw dirt at him and cursed him as he left. And as he's coming home, as we get to Jordan, we're about to cross. Here comes Shemaiah. And the Bible said he runs to David and he falls down on his face and he says, would you please forgive me for what I've done in the past? Would you please not kill me? I deserve to die. I deserve the punishment. I deserve judgment. I deserve everything that you could do to me. But can I appeal to you? Please forgive me. And David surprised everybody. David had this hit man. His name was Abishai. Brother. He's the one that killed all the enemies. And when Shemaiah ran down there and fell at the feet of David, Abishai pulled out his sword and he said, Let me cut his head off, David. Read it. It's right there in that same passage. Let me kill him. He cursed the anointed of God. Let me cut his head off. And David said, put your sword up. Put your sword up. And he looked at Shemiah and lifted him up and said, you shall not die. You're forgiven. Boy, it's quiet in this house. Let me tell you what the Difference is in grace and mercy. Mercy 
It's when you deserve something, but you don't get it. That's mercy. It's when you're driving down the highway, making 80 mile an hour in a 55 zone, and a blue light comes on behind you, and this guy with a starched clothing walks up with a deep voice and says, where are you going in such a hurry? You know you're breaking the law. We've got you on radar here doing 80 mile an hour in a 55 zone. Now what do you think I should do with you? Would a warning ticket be all right? <laughs> warning, I'm thinking about reckless driving. You're 25 miles over the limit. That's reckless driving here. I can throw the book at you. You know you deserve it. You're guilty. You did it. And then you get that sweet, sweet word said, I'm going to give you a warning. You knew you deserved a ticket, but you didn't get it. That's mercy. Everybody say mercy. That's mercy. But if when you, she started to walk away, he said, say, I've got this gift card in my pocket here for Olive Garden. You like Olive Garden? Yeah, I do. My, my wife won't eat Italian foods here. Here, you can have that. You didn't deserve that. But he gave it to you anyway. What is that? Grace. Mercy is when you deserve something, but you don't get it. Grace is when you get something that you don't deserve. And that's the difference in it. You need to give God a hand. So you know what Shemai got? Shemai got mercy. He was guilty. But David gave him mercy. You know who gets more grace? You know the star of this, this whole story? You know who, who the winner is in this whole thing? You know who the big character is? Who gets more grace and more mercy than anybody in this whole scriptures we put on that screen? David. Because he's acted like a hellion. And God restores him and puts him back. He's acted like he deserves, oh, he deserves all the crazy things he's done. And David had this problem of being one way in public and being another way in private. Come on now. Because when David lay a dying, that's when you really get the truth. Not just what the testify on Wednesday night, what the real truth. And as David lay dying, he said, Solomon, I got some things you need to take care of for me. That Joab wrought so much evil and killed three of my generals. That Joab that murdered my son. Said, I tell you what, said, I want you to deal with him. Don't you let him go down to his grave with a hoary head. Don't let his hoary head go down to his grave. Do you know what hoary head means? I'm one. 
great. Great. And he said, yeah, that Shema, that guy that before everybody else, I forgave him because I wanted all of them, you know, to forgive me. So you take care of all these folks after I'm gone. Oh, Jesus. I believe he's in heaven right now. I believe he's there because of God's grace and God's mercy. See, it's tough. It's tough to point fingers at David. And he, boy, he's a target, easy target. Brother, David just gives you such an enormous target. We're going to preach about next Sunday about another guy that David talked to. And his name is a guy that you don't probably know, Barzillai. I knew you wouldn't know it. Barzillai, because he was a friend to David when David was at his worst. And when, when they go back to in Ezra chapter 6 and in Nehemiah chapter 7, when they're all coming back from the exile, you remember that? When they start numbering the 42,000 children that came back, one of the groupings is the children of Barzillai, 600 years later. You mean God is still blessing generations of Brazilians? 600 years later, they're still saved, still in the church, still doing good, still walking in faith. Glory to God. What a blessing that is. For people that befriend the anointed and the people of God, then God keeps those families and God sustains those families. Stand with me or I'll preach all day. Full of preach today. You may not beat the Baptist Shonies today. I just feel like somebody in this house would say, Pastor, if God is like you described, I'd sure like to have some of that mercy and grace. I believe grace and mercy can cover a lot of things. I believe that grace and mercy can heal a lot of things. I believe that grace and mercy can heal families. I believe grace and mercy can heal marriages. I believe grace and mercy can heal friends and friendships and relationships. you believe that? I believe that with all my heart. You believe God is interested in that? You better believe He is. He's all about that. That's why He does what He does. That's why He is who He is. Because He's God. And His mercy endureth from everlasting to everlasting. Take the hand of that person beside you and let's pray. God, in Jesus' name, all over this house, there are people, people that have gone through every kind of issue we can think of. There are people that have been hurt. There are people that have suffered loss. There are people that have been battered. There are people, Lord, that are struggling today. But I know, God, that your grace and mercy will bring us through. I know that your grace and mercy will help us, Lord, 
to be what we need to be for you. Your grace and mercy will help us do things we thought we couldn't do. Your grace and mercy will help us go in areas we thought we couldn't go. Your grace and mercy will help us, Lord, say words that we thought we never could say. Your grace and mercy will cause us to feel a way that we thought we'd never feel again. We, your grace and your mercy can give us a praise when we haven't had a praise. Your grace and mercy will give us a song when we didn't have a song to sing. Your grace and mercy will lift us up when we thought we'd be down forever. Your grace and mercy will elevate us when we think we're always going to be at the same level. God, in Jesus' name, all over this house, I pray that your spirit of grace and mercy would move in this place and that you would touch and heal and restore and revive, that you would infuse with power from the Holy Spirit people to do and be and say the things that God would have us to be and do and say. Thank you for the opportunity to represent you in this world. God, I realize I'm talking to your brand right here. These people are advertisements for you, God. They are examples. Their life is a living epistle so that it's read daily by all men. In Jesus' name, God, give us an epistle that tells and testifies of the greatness of God's mercy and his grace. Dismiss us from this place now, but not your heart. God, and give us like David was a man after God's own heart. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. God bless you and God go with you. It's my prayer. Shake hands and be friendly. And you better be friendly whether you shake hands or not.